thank God. I, uh, I wonder whether you've ever felt like poor old Job. Like the world perhaps is uh, closing in on you. Everything maybe just feels like it's crashing down around you. The darkness is pretty overwhelming and you wonder why on earth God is letting it happen to you. And I wonder whether you've felt like Job. And in the midst of all that happening, uh, a well-meaning friend comes along. Uh, And we all know how that turned out for Job. But perhaps uh, for us, uh, along comes a well-meaning Christian friend. And uh, and they assume that what you're going through right now, well, it must be because of some unconfessed sin in your life. And so, like a sledgehammer, they seek to open your eyes to that matter. Or perhaps they ask you, and, uh, and what do you think God is trying to teach you through this trial? And inside you're thinking, I have absolutely no idea. And quite frankly, I wish you'd hurry up. Or maybe even worse, they ask you, and are you experiencing a special closeness with God through this trial? And you're thinking, no. If anything, God seems completely absent, far away, disinterested. The anguish of that kind of experience is very real. We know the theory of Romans eight twenty eight that in all things God is uh, working for good, but you don't, you just don't see it right now. You certainly don't feel it. I don't know. Maybe you're in that kind of position this evening. Maybe that's uh, where life has brought you to right at the moment. Maybe grieving the loss of a a loved one. Perhaps there is that sense that as David uh, talks about in this psalm, perhaps there's that sense that the enemy is triumphing in some way or other at the moment. Perhaps experiencing real trial in your Christian life. Maybe depression. Anguish. And you just wonder how long Maybe you're spiritually dry, and God just seems a long way off. Maybe you're experiencing exactly what Psalm 13 is talking about right now. Or maybe someone you love and care about is experiencing it right now. And you just don't know how to help them. Many of us know, don't we, what it is to be brought low. To be, if not in the place the psalmist describes, somewhere pretty near it. Uh, And Psalm 13 is by no means the darkest psalm. There are are many more that that go on and and don't seem to end with the note of positivity that this psalm does. Uh, But this psalm is in the Bible to tell us that God says it's okay to weep. Weeping is appropriate, even in the Christian life. This psalm is a kind of model lament. Uh, To lament is, in fact, to express faith in God. Uh, When we lament, uh, we are agreeing with God's verdict that the world is not as it ought to be. We're agreeing with his verdict, but we're also expressing our trust that he's making things new. Uh, And so in Psalm 13, we learn what it means to lament properly, biblically, in a God-glorifying way. And, And yet, 
that's not the only reason that Psalm 13 is in our Bibles, as I hope we'll see later on. But what does Psalm 13 teach us about how to lament properly? Well, first of all, it teaches us to address the problem to God. And I think that's what we see in the first two verses. I think there's something very important to notice here. Uh, Because we know our Bibles well, well, I hope we know our Bibles well, when we think of God's people complaining, where do our minds go? I mean, you can answer that if you you want to, but our minds go to the Israelites in the wilderness, don't they? And we remember how it was that it was their complaining that aroused God's anger. And it led to that generation of them not seeing the promised land. The famous Victorian Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, uh, once said, never complain. Uh, And and ever since, that has kind of become a a British motto, hasn't it? A British way of life. Never complain, mustn't grumble, grin and bear it. But should that be our approach as Christians? Well, is that what the life of the Israelites in the wilderness, their experience, is is that what that teaches us? Never complain. Uh, Well, not quite. Remember that generation of of Israelites had been rescued, hadn't they, by God's mighty hand from Egypt. They'd seen firsthand, uh, and recently, in living memory, they'd seen firsthand God's goodness and God's faithfulness on Passover night. They'd seen God's power in front of them as he parted the waters of the Red Sea. And then Moses tells us in Numbers 11... Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. They cast their minds back and, and they, remember, they remember the lovely fruit they enjoyed in Egypt. They conveniently forgot about the harsh slavery. They just remembered the good food. Uh, they didn't remember God's faithfulness and goodness in saving them. And so by the time you get to Numbers 11 uh, and they're, they're complaining in the wilderness... They're complaining in the hearing of the Lord. What they're doing is the equivalent of grumbling about somebody behind their back. The only trouble is, of course, God can see what they're doing. God can hear it. And what they're doing is they're complaining about God. They question God's motives. Did God just bring us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, they ask? They've seen firsthand God's goodness, remember. And yet behind his back, they're complaining about him. That's the difference, you see. They complained about him, and that... Uh, oh, we've gone too far. They complained about God. David, in Psalm 13, is complaining to God. He's not saying God's the problem. He knows that God's the answer. He's addressing the problem to God, to the very one he knows is good and faithful, to the God he knows is the the almighty one that we were singing about at the beginning of our service, to the God he knows is the the creator, the one who is sovereign, even over this difficult period of his life. Uh, And we don't know exactly what period of of his life this, this psalm was written in. But he knows that God is sovereign over it. And so David addresses the problem to God. How long, Lord... Uh, and the key comes right there in just the third word. He's addressing the problem to none other than the Lord. Uh, he uses God's covenant name. 
the name he revealed to Moses at the burning bush, the name that represents all that God is and has promised to be, the name that God revealed to his people when he said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Do you see what David's doing? How long, Lord? He's not just grumbling about his circumstances. He's not pitying himself. He's addressing the problem directly to the Lord. To the one he knows can see him and hear him. The one he knows can be trusted. And as we address the problems that we face to the Lord, we trust him to be able to deal with them. And as we pour out our hearts like David did, we know that God will hear us. Satan, the, the old enemy, well, he'll try and put us off. And he might whisper in our, our ears, do you really think you can talk to God? And if you do, how dare you talk to him like that? And yet we know that through our Lord Jesus, we have direct access into God's presence. We bring our problems before the God of the universe. We come confidently through our Saviour. How long, Lord? Isn't it wonderful to know that we can address our prayers directly to the Creator God? That even in our darkest moments, we can cry out to Him knowing that that, that somewhere He is there. In those moments when God seems absent or or far away, we cry out to the one that we know is there somewhere. And in crying out to him, that in itself is a gift, is an act of, of faith. Knowing, believing that even though he seems far off, he's actually close. Even though he seems absent, he's actually present. And in his grace and his mercy, he welcomes us. We were on holiday recently, and in Truro Cathedral, I noticed uh, this painting. painting of uh, an icon uh, of Mary holding an infant Jesus. And the notice beside uh, the painting talked about the grief that you can see in Mary's eyes, and as she anticipated the anguish that would come. Uh, but the way that Jesus gazed comfortingly up at her. And the final line on the notice said this. Pray to Christ and his mother as you look. I was heartbroken. Because we don't need to pray to Mary or any saint. That is no good. We pray to Christ and his father. Our father. We have direct access into the throne room of heaven to the king of glory. The Lord who was and is and is to come. What an amazing God to grant us that kind of access to himself. And and he invites us to come even in the darkest of times. God doesn't say to us, just only come when you're feeling okay. Uh, Or come back next month when you've got it all sorted. What did Jesus say? Come to me all who are weak, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Uh, The Bible never assumes that we won't have problems. Uh, The Bible never assumes we won't have doubts and dark times and go through uh, deep valleys. You you know, there are many, there are some in the name of Christ who promise all the abundant blessings of heaven now. But you know, this is one of the areas that they just don't have an answer to. They cannot answer psalms like Psalm 13. 
The Bible never assumes we won't have problems, dark times, doubts and sorrows. What the Bible does do is teach us to bring those problems to God. Staggering when we think about it. that The creator of the universe should invite us to come, not just in good times, but in dark times. How long, Lord? Just an aside on that very point. It's really important for us as Christians to be able to be open with one another about suffering and sorrow, about anguish and grief. We need to be able to talk to one another about those times, about the deep valleys that we go through. We need to be able to do it without feeling afraid that our Christian brothers and sisters might think less of us. We need to make sure we don't make each other feel like spiritual failures. Because we need to realise that when a Christian brother or sister cries out in the way that David does in Psalm 13, when a Christian brother or sister cries out in this kind of way, they are not expressing a lack of faith in God. In fact, the opposite. They're expressing a deep trust in the God they know is there even when they don't feel his presence. So we address the problem to God. How long, Lord? But just look in in those opening two verses at at the way David expresses the problem. Uh, I know we've spent quite a long time on just the first three words, but we won't take quite that long over the rest of it. Um, But the language David uses is really raw. If someone was to come up to you and and talk in this kind of way, you might say, don't over-exaggerate. Get a grip. But the reality is it really does sometimes feel as though God has forgotten us. Satan wants us to feel like an orphan on the street corner. That God has forgotten us. Uh, The the word forget, uh, incidentally, doesn't imply that God is is Uh, absent-minded. It's meaning that God is deliberately being inactive. God's not doing anything to help, or so it seems to David. It feels as if God isn't doing anything to help the situation. And in fact, the second part of verse 1 goes a bit further. God, it's like you've hidden your face from me, he cries. It's not just that you're busy elsewhere and you're not helping me, Lord. It's like you've actively taken the decision to look away from me. And in that sense, it feels like God is far away. And that feeling that God's presence is far away is just the most painful, simply the darkest experience that I think a Christian can have. And verse 2, David goes on, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts day and night? I have sorrow in my heart. You see, that's what happens when we feel that God is far away. We turn inward uh, and our thoughts start whizzing around our, our heads. Maybe we start thinking, have I sinned? What have I done to bring this upon me? What have I done to make God turn away from me? What can I do to make him look back towards me? In some situations, people's thoughts have turned to even darker things than that. We wrestle with ourselves. Our hearts are sorrowful and downcast. And then David asks, how long will my enemy triumph over me? It may have been that he was writing this while he was on the run from from an enemy. uh, Literally hiding from an enemy. It may have been that he was referring more spiritually to to the enemy. It may be that the enemy is referring to his death itself. Uh, It's probably deliberately ambiguous so that actually we can apply it to any and every situation we might face. But, But aren't there times in the Christian life, certainly any of us who have walked a reasonable distance with Jesus, we know there are times when it might feel as though the enemy is gaining the upper hand, doesn't it? 
It's felt like that many times for the church as a whole throughout history. But whatever the problem, we address it to the Lord because he can be trusted. And like David, we do it in a way that we pour out our hearts. You see, David doesn't just tell God the problem. He tells him how he feels about it. This darkness, this trial he's going through, it's causing him real, genuine anguish. Sorrow, mental and spiritual darkness. And it's interesting to see as you read the Psalms that the Psalmists tend to spend much more time telling God the problem and how they feel about it than they spend telling God what to do. Sometimes our temptation, isn't it? But it's sufficient to tell God the problem. Tell him how it's making us feel. And as we take that to the Lord, we trust him to deal with it. How do we lament properly? Well, we first of all address the problem to God. Secondly, we ask God to answer verses 3 and 4. We address the problem to God. We trust that he knows what to do. But then we do ask God to answer us in our time of need. God wants us to open up to him. And as we were reminded at the very beginning of our service, we will not be condemned. Look on me and answer, Lord. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. What David is is doing, he's subtly reminding God of the consequences if he is allowed to be overcome by his enemy. If if he is on the run uh, and if he were to get killed in battle, then his kingdom will come to an end. His enemies will rejoice in his fall. And yet God has promised David that his kingdom will endure. So what David is basically doing in this prayer is saying, Lord, if this carries on, and if my enemy really does triumph over me, you know what that will mean, Lord, don't you? It will mean your promise has failed. And of course, David knows that God will not let that happen. And so on the rock-solid basis of God's own word... David is asking God to answer him. He's essentially praying God's character and God's promises back to him. It's as if he's saying, Lord, you've promised my kingdom will endure. You've promised great things. And right now that promise looks like it's dead in the water. Lord, I know you won't let that happen. So please answer me and act in accordance with your character and faithfulness. And sometimes praying God's word, praying God's promises back to him is about as much as we can manage. But as we do that, we stand on the rock solid promises of God himself. Sometimes we just don't know the words to say. Sometimes we can't muster up the spiritual energy to get past heavenly father. And yeah, we rest on the promises of the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit interprets the groans of our heart. But try this. When in the darkest of valleys, try this. Try praying God's word back to him. How do we lament properly? Will we address the problem to God? We ask God to answer. Thirdly, we affirm our trust in God, verses 5 and 6. The reality is, Satan wants us to doubt God's goodness. He wants us to doubt God's goodness to us and yet David is clinging on to his Lord but I trust in your unfailing love that that little word but this morning I made a lot of another three-letter word joy well there's another three-letter word to make a lot of but 
My enemies surround me and even threaten to overcome me. But. But I trust in your unfailing love. Christianity is a faith so robust that even when God seems far away, we can trust him because we know the one who is faithful. I trust in your unfailing love. Uh, The Hebrew word there uh, is a beautiful word. Uh, The word is keset. It's incredibly difficult to translate into English, but unfailing love is just about as close as we can get. It's a word that draws on God's covenant faithfulness. He has promised his love. And so it can be depended upon. Twelve years, one month and three days ago, Uh, I stood opposite Beth at the front of a church. Uh, She was beautiful then. And she is even more beautiful now, before anybody... um, I stood opposite Beth and promised to love her until death parts us. I promised her my unfailing love. It's a love that is not always based on warm, fuzzy feelings. But I've committed myself to her by a covenant. And in a much greater way, God has committed himself by a covenant to his people. That's the love David trusts. Satan wants us to doubt God's love and God's goodness. And the single most important thing we can do in the midst of The dark values of our lives is to stake our life on the promise of God's unfailing love. David continues, my heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. You see, David could look back over Israel's history. He could look back over his own life and see the way that God has been at work. He could see the ways in which God has been faithful. He could see the ways in which God has been good to him. And despite the intense reality of his sufferings, and we, by the time we get to the end of the psalm, we must not downplay the intensity of the suffering of verse 1 and 2. But despite the intense reality of his suffering, he knew that God was good. And he was not going to let go of that fact. That is so often what the Christian life is like, isn't it? There were once three guys who went hiking for a weekend in the mountains. While they were up there, one of them slid uh, and fell off a, a cliff uh, down a ravine onto a rock ledge below. His two friends were obviously worried, so they called down to him, Joe, Joe, are, are you okay? Uh, the reply came out, yeah, I, I think I've, I'm okay, but I think I've broken both my arms. Uh, and so they try to get down, they can't, they're, they're wondering what to do. So one of them has the brainwave of sending a rope down uh, to try and haul Joe up. Uh, and so they heave and they sigh, and then the other one suddenly thinks... And calls down, Joe, if you broke both your arms, how are you holding on to the rope? The reply came back, with my teeth. And I thought, what a good metaphor that is for the Christian life sometimes. Doesn't it just feel like that sometimes? That we're just about clinging on by our teeth. But how important it is to do that. It's better to cling on by our teeth than to let go 
And the reality is that as we sung earlier on, though we might be hanging on by our teeth, he is holding on to us and he will hold me fast. Even in the midst of uh, darkness and depression and sorrow and struggle, we can trust in our God. We can sing the Lord's praise as David does. We can look at all the ways he's been good to us. That's what clinging on looks like. That's what the Christian life looks like. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul describes the Christian life as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's not that the Christian life is a a spectrum of of joy. You've got grief and sorrow over this end. You've got your wedding day and the birth of your children over at that end. And you kind of uh, go backwards and forwards along it. It's not like that at all. It's like two sides of one coin. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We may have doubts. And questions and sorrows and struggles, but at the same time, we can trust God's unfailing love and rejoice in his salvation. We can still give thanks for his unfailing love. In the midst of the darkness, we cling to the joyful hope of a brighter tomorrow. Why? How? Because even more than King David could, we can see the Lord's goodness displayed in all its glory as we look at the cross of Jesus. There we can see the Lord's unfailing love on full display, unmistakable. There we can see how God has been good to us. There we can see how God has kept all his promises. There we see a saviour who stepped into our broken world. And who has experienced all our humanness. There we see a saviour as we sung earlier on. Who has walked this path before us. And is walking with us still. It's a second world war poster of uh, Winston Churchill. With the caption let us go forward together. Uh, In wartime people looked to him. They trusted Churchill to lead them. The poster says let us go forward together. Reality was, Churchill was most of the time holed up in his wartime bunker. Most people never met him, but they looked to him. We can go much better. We know Jesus. And we look to him, the saviour who's not behind us, but in front of us. The saviour that Psalm 13 is all about. Do you remember on resurrection evening, as, as Jesus walked with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what did he do? Well, he opened up the scriptures, the Old Testament, and he explained to them how it was all about him. You see, Psalm 13 is not only the experience of King David, it's the experience of King Jesus in his humanity too. Ultimately, this psalm points us to him, and and being pointed to him is the tonic our souls need the most. The 33 years of his humanity were difficult for Jesus. They were long days for the one who inhabited eternity. They were full of sorrow. Think about how Jesus mourned over the unbelief of his people. Think about how he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Think about how he wrestled with his emotions in the garden of Gethsemane. Consider how it looked as though the enemy had won the day. Consider how Jesus experienced God's face hidden from him as he bore our sin on the cross. 
and consider how Jesus, like David before him, committed himself to his father in prayer. He did it throughout his life. He did it on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And consider how in the darkness of that moment, the darkest of moments, Jesus rejoiced in God's salvation. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus looked beyond the darkness of today to see the brightness of tomorrow. He set his hope on God. He believed his father's promises and trusted him to save. For the joy that was set before him. The joy of leading sinners like us home to glory. For the joy set before him. He endured the cross for us. So there's a fourth thing in the light of all that. A fourth thing that Psalm 13 helps us to do as we lament properly. And that is to anticipate future glory. This world is broken. King David knew it. King Jesus knew it. And we know it. This world is broken It's perishing, it's decaying, and yet there are enough fragments of glory for us to know that this is not how it should be. And we say, how long, Lord? Because we know there is a day coming when Jesus will return, when God will be with his people, and we won't ever feel like he's hidden from us again. A day when every tear will be wiped away and every sorrow will be gone and the enemy will be fully and finally defeated. Our eyes will be wide open to see his glory. We'll experience his love like never before and we'll rejoice in his goodness forever. And every day we get through the battle now brings that day ever closer. In the darkness, in the sorrow, in the depression, in the illness, we anticipate that future glory. Sixteen years ago, my grandfather lay wasting away in a hospital bed for nine months. I'm absolutely certain that there were times during those months that he wondered what was going on. Times that he wrestled with God and asked, how long, Lord? And towards the end, he was comatose, unresponsive. And yet in the final minutes before he passed into glory, uh, my aunt sang the chorus to him. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. And the faintest glimmer of a smile crept over his face before he smiled with Jesus. Psalm 13 speaks about the reality that we all know or will know at some point. Life In a broken world. It speaks of the reality that Jesus experienced. And it shows us how to lament properly. We address the problem to God. We ask God to answer. We affirm our trust in him. And as we do that we anticipate future glory. It's Martin Luther who said there are only two days in my diary. This day and that day. And in the darkness of this day. We long for the glory of that day. So we pray together. Lord our God, we confess that there are often times in our lives in this world where we know the brokenness of this life.
times when we find it hard, times when we are down and low, times when it feels as though your presence is hidden from us. And Lord, you know the anguish of those moments. And so we ask that you would help us in those times to lament properly. To lament in a way that brings you glory. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to help one another to lament in that way too. Help us, ultimately though, to look to our Saviour Jesus and to anticipate the future glory that we will enjoy through him. In his precious name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing uh, a lovely 